This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chepka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, it's an uncommon but not rare condition manifested by a tachycardia that occurs after sitting up or standing, and it's often associated with other symptoms such as dizziness, fatigue, and occasionally syncope. POTS can be difficult to diagnose as patients often present with a variety of vague and sometimes what seem like unrelated symptoms. Management of patients with POTS can be equally difficult as there's no one treatment which is effective in all patients. As a result, patients often go from one provider to another, trying to find one who can establish a cause for their symptoms and more importantly, find effective treatment. So to help us with this frustrating medical condition is Dr. Jeremy Cutsforth Gregory, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Daryl. Yeah, this is an interesting topic. Is there an age when POTS typically develops? Does this happen in childhood or is this something that comes on in adult life only? Yeah, POTS, it can occur at any age. The most typical age is the range from 15 to 50, which is a broad range, I understand. And it's occasionally younger, rarely older. Are some more likely to have this than others? In other words, are there, are there risk factors for developing this? Sure. Well, the first one is actually just that it affects women more than men, about five to one. So if you can consider being a woman a risk factor, that would count here for POTS. Other things include joint hypermobility, and that might be patients who have connective tissue disorders with the diagnosis like Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, but also just a, a modest degree of joint hypermobility can do it. Some people say that having a type A personality is a risk factor. I don't know that I, I see that so much, whether it's just patients motivated to get better and whether that yeah. comes through as a go-getter kind of personality. Well, and it, it seems like the patients I've seen, there has been some emotional overlay issues and I wonder if it's just because this is such a frustrating illness, it's chronic, and providers often don't know what to do with patients who have it. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, both, as you said in your opening, the, the diagnosis can be difficult, and I'm sure we'll get into that more. Patients are on a journey. It's not that they go to their first doctor and, and get a POTS diagnosis, and even if they do, rarely is an effective treatment plan fully realized in that first visit. It really is a journey that we take together with them. Yep. Is there any evidence for uh, a genetic tendency for this? There are many patients who have family members, whether that's siblings, mother, aunts, or cousins, who have similar problems with orthostatic tolerance and problems being upright. But there's actually just a single family that's been reported with a pathogenic gene mutation, and that related to the norepinephrine transporter. And so is it genetic? Not as far as we can prove, but we often hear about positive family history. Yeah. Well, I don't see a lot of patients who have this. And so I was doing some reading in preparation for this podcast. And I came across uh, one statement that said pregnancy seemed to improve the symptoms of POTS. And uh, that makes me wonder, is this some hormonal issue or any idea why that would be the case? I think there's a couple of things. There are definitely hormonal effects on POTS. Um, and evidence for that is a lot of women who say their symptoms get much worse at a certain point of their menstrual cycle. And usually that comes along with a major fluid shift. And they say, you know, these are the women who say, I gained five or 10 pounds, gain or lose uh, that much with each cycle. 
and they'll feel their POTS get worse. In pregnancy, I think the other thing, in addition to the hormones, could be, especially later in pregnancy, the growing baby in the womb, because we'll talk about treatment later, but one of the key factors is that the blood pooling that occurs as patients stand up occurs in those blood vessels in the abdomen, pelvis, and thighs, so kind of the mesenteric splanchnic bed. And so if you've got a little person in there pressing on those, providing compression, that's actually going to reduce the amount of blood pooling that can occur. I think that's why, especially late in pregnancy, uh, the symptoms can be improved. Mm, okay. Well, let's get down to the most important question. What causes this? Are there theories that people have that get at the cause of POTS? First, we have to recognize POTS is probably a heterogeneous disorder with a few things. The most common subtype, if you will, or maybe mechanism or cause of POTS is neuropathic POTS. And so these are patients who develop an actual autonomic neuropathy, usually quite limited, mild, and yet the first sign is this orthostatic intolerance. And so a very classic story I would hear is a patient who had a viral illness of some sort. Um, these days, of course, we think about COVID and there have been post-COVID cases, but also just any other viral infection. And a week or two later, develop tachycardia and symptoms when they're upright. That's about half of patients with neuropathic POTS and neuropathic POTS is about half of POTS altogether. The other common subtype is what we call hyperadrenergic POTS, right? So basically an excessive adrenaline or, or fight or flight response to standing. This one often has comorbid anxiety, sweatiness, tremulousness of the hands. And so you can just imagine that feeling wired and tachycardia being part of that. Those patients can even get spells when they're asleep. So what is the cause? I think that one is a bit more mysterious, but it, it's this centrally driven hyperadrenergic response that then also manifests in daytime upright time. And then I, I alluded to the joint hypermobility as a risk factor already. And I would usually call that a, a full separate subtype, joint hypermobile POTS. And I do that just because the treatments vary to some degree between these different types. Some of the treatments are common to all of them, but some of them really have more value in the different types. So multiple types of POTS would explain why there's such variation in symptoms. Because I can understand uh, the lightheadedness, tachycardia, palpitations, syncope uh, as being orthostatic related. But some of the others, you know, difficulty concentrating, fatigue, exercise intolerance, um, those are a little bit harder to understand. But if there are multiple types, that at least helps explain that. So how do we diagnose POTS? Is there a test that is reliable that we can say, yes, this is what you have? Absolutely. And yeah, the diagnosis here, um, as hard as it can be to find for a patient, really has a good evidence and consensus basis behind it. And that's a patient who has uh, chronic symptoms, so several months, that are worsened when they're upright, that reflect either cerebral hypoperfusion, so those are the things you talked about already, syncope, lightheadedness, dizziness, or sympathetic hyperactivation, hyperexcitation, that's the palpitations, the tremulousness, the sweatiness, so there's the symptoms, and a documented rise in heart rate, more than 30 beats per minute from supine to standing or sitting to standing. Now in younger folks, so if you're um, between 12 and 19 years of age, so adolescents, the normal heart rate increment upon standing is a bit higher. And so the cutoff for POTS is actually 40 beats per minute. So over age 19, 30 beats per minute upon standing from whatever the baseline was, under 19, uh, down to 12, 40 beats per minute. We don't have established cutoff for even younger patients, but like I said, it's pretty rare to have your know, grade school age kids uh, with diagnosed with the syndrome. 
Well, you mentioned the different types of POTS. Are there any associated pathologic changes that can actually be found in these patients? There are, um, particularly among the neuropathic POTS patients, depending on the testing one does, if you can do an assessment of small fiber nerve function, the autonomic nerves are all small fibers, meaning they don't have much myelin, you can see damage. And so here in the autonomic clinic at Mayo, we've got a couple of different tests that can get at that. There's the autonomic reflex screen, which is a tilt table test, along with some breathing exercises and an assessment of sweating that actually gets at those autonomic nerve functions. So actually to the earlier question of how can you diagnose it, that test uh, is probably the most common way to do it is the, the tilt table with the autonomic testing. And you might see, for example, reduced sweating at the foot compared to the, the leg or the arm. So kind of this length dependent uh, neuropathy. We've also got the luxury of something called the thermoregulatory sweat test, basically a big sweat box. And we use a color changing powder. Patients go in with kind of a yellow powder covering from head to toe, crank up the heat, raises the body temperature, induces sweating, the powder turns purple when sweat touches it. And what we'll often see in patients with POTS is that their toes or maybe their whole feet stay dry. So again, evidence of this length dependent uh, neuropathy. And that would be the pathologic change. There's a, a subset of patients who will have antibodies to a variety of autoimmune conditions that may or may not be directly related. Some of these patients, um, you know, they're probably prone to autoimmunity. So maybe they have antibodies reflecting Hashimoto thyroiditis. There's a very small subset who actually have antibodies against the autonomic nerves. And so POTS can be a form frust of a more widespread autonomic failure called autonomic, I'm sorry, called autoimmune autonomic ganglionopathy. Um, but that really has profound autonomic failure across all domains. And POTS is the mildest version of that where it just seems to affect uh, heart rate. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can have these antibodies. I think one thing um, for people to be aware of, though, is that the autoimmune form of POTS is a small subset. There are a couple of labs out there that, who have reported more antibodies, but I think we're just not quite to the point of making that clinically validated. You know, we haven't been able to reproduce some of the results. And so I uh, think, yes, there's an autoimmune subtype of POTS, but it's probably not all of the patients like some people um, are proposing. How about any other blood tests uh, checking for various neuroendocrine hormones or chemicals? Anything there of any value? Yeah, great question. One of them. Um, so we can actually measure norepinephrine uh, in the forearm, and we can do it with the patient supine and standing. And so we can get both a baseline level, which might be elevated in those hyperadrenergic patients. So it's not adrenaline, it's actually norepinephrine that controls uh, vasomotor tone. So is the hormone that is released when we stand up to try to control, uh, maintain blood pressure by increasing peripheral resistance. We can measure that norepinephrine. It can be elevated at baseline, or it could be normal at baseline, but with an exaggerated increase, kind of like the heart rate increase that's exaggerated. And that is the best way we can kind of really solidify a hyperadrenergic POTS diagnosis. For joint hypermobility, no blood test, but uh, there's a great, uh, you might be familiar with the Biden hypermobility score. This is something where if you can touch your thumb down to your forearm, you earn a point on each side. If you can extend your pinky back beyond 90 degrees or your elbows beyond 10 degrees, or your knees beyond 10 degrees. Finally, if you can touch your palms flat to the floor without bending your legs, it's a very easy nine point scale that I, I check in all my patients just as a way to, to gauge how hypermobile are they and get a sense of whether they have a component of hypermobile POTS. Okay. I want to circle back for just a second on something you said a little bit ago, where this POTS might be the beginning of a more substantial autonomic dysfunction. 
are patients who are prone to having autonomic dysfunction, such as diabetics and part of an autonomic neuropathy, are they more likely to get this? I'm glad you asked because um, I want to clarify there. It, it probably isn't like the early version of a more severe autonomic dysfunction, but rather just a mild version of what's on a spectrum of autonomic dysfunction. I got and when we see patients with diabetic autonomic neuropathy or any of the synucleinopathies, things like Parkinson's disease or multiple system atrophy, where they have a, a central or a peripheral autonomic degeneration, we'll see orthostatic hypotension. And one of the key things with POTS is that these patients have this excessive heart rate rise, but they don't have a drop in blood pressure. With diabetic autonomic neuropathy, Parkinson's disease and things, we're usually seeing that drop in blood pressure. And so their heart rate may or may not go up. It's quite different from POTS in that regard. And usually one does not lead to the other. All right. Well, let's switch to management now. First question is, does POTS ever resolve on its own if we do nothing? If we do nothing and the patient does nothing, it's rarely going to improve. The long-term goal cure, if you will, is gradual reconditioning. And while it may not completely get rid of the heart rate acceleration, it will often improve patients' symptoms and their function. And that's an important goal here is that we try to get patients to focus not on what their Fitbit tells them their heart rate heart is doing, but how they feel and how long they can be upright and what they can do in that position. If we don't do anything and they don't do some of that exercise, they're probably not going to improve. Fortunately, there's a lot of things we can do to help them be able to do that exercise. So we have asked you to help us with this and you've established and confirmed a diagnosis of POTS. What do you recommend for your patients to get better? We start with non-pharmacologic strategies. And that's because one, they're often enough. And two, if they're not in place, any medication trials we might embark on are going to fail. And so I spend a fair bit of time educating patients on these seemingly kind of common sense, you know, not world-changing uh, strategies, but they make a big difference. And so that starts with fl liberal fluid intake, so 64 ounces or two liters a day, water or anything else non-caffeinated. To tell them it doesn't have to be water, that would be great, but anything without caffeine works liberal salt, so their body holds on to that fluid that they're drinking. Right? You, can, you can drink 10 liters, but if you don't eat any salt, you're just going to pee it out. So we got to get those two in combination. Compression garments. And a lot of patients will come to me saying, well, I wore the compression socks and I didn't notice a difference. And I'll say, I'm sure that's true because the blood is not pooling down in your calves. It really is pooling, like I said earlier, in the splanchnic beds, in the abdomen, pelvis, and thighs. And so we need compression, but really what we need is compression from the bottom of the rib cage down to the knees. Really that midsection is the prime target for the compression garments. And so if we're gonna use the compression stocking or hose, they have to come all the way up to the waist. And I'll say they're hot, they're hard to put on. And most patients can't do it. And that's completely understandable. And so I say, well, what about Spanx or Under Armour? And I'm not endorsing any particular brand, but people are familiar with those. What I mean is a, you know, a sporting type compression garment usually covers the right part of the body, a lot easier to put on, is made to be cool and breathable, and people can tolerate wearing that under their other clothes. So I say, get a shirt and shorts or get a one piece that goes you know, basically from your ribs down to your knees. Fluid salt compression, that works us into exercise. We talk about both cardio exercise and weight training. From the cardio standpoint, the goal eventually, maybe over three to six months, is to get to doing 30 minutes of continuous vigorous activity five or six days a week. That can be anything that works the, the, the midsection, the core, the thighs, it gets the heart going. Often people do better if they start with something recumbent, like a recumbent bike or swimming or rowing machine. 
They tell them, if you're not exercising now, you're gonna want to jump to that 30 minutes right away, but if you do, you're gonna backslide. We start with five minutes. And you tell patients, I'm not just giving you permission to start it easy, I'm telling you, you have to start out slow and easy. Five minutes every other day. And once you can do that without kind of paying the price, then you increase to 10 minutes and 15 and so on. And once you can get to 30 minutes and have a day of rest in between and feel okay, then we're ready to start working towards from three days a week to four, and then finally to five and six days a week. So it's a slow process, and that's an important part of the education too. Weight training, I say low weight, lots of repetitions. Thighs, butt, and core, whatever the exercises are, if they're targeting that part of the body, and you can do 12 reps without pausing, that's the right amount. And then finally, some patients can be helped by sleeping with an inclined bed. So if they actually put some blocks under the head of the bed, so they've got their head above their heart, above their kidneys, it actually reduces blood pressure overnight a little bit. So then they make less urine overnight, they start the morning less dehydrated, and it just gets the day started a little bit easier. So fluid, salt, compression, exercise, head of the bed elevated. Those are the five key non-pharmacologic strategies. So in your experience, how effective are those treatment strategies? How many patients actually get helped by that? Honestly, this is going to seem like an exaggeration, but it's rare for me to get a patient who said that doing all those things didn't help at all. It may not be enough, but I would say in half my patients, that gets us kind of over the threshold to start exercising. I'll emphasize also in the patients with joint hypermobility, if they don't have appropriate compression, nothing else seems to work. I think that just reflects if, they're, if their you know, joints are loose, probably their blood vessel connective tissue is a bit looser, floppier, they have more blood pooling, more capillary leakage, and they've got to get compression on the midsection. And then they are, that for them, sometimes that's all they need. But if they got the neuropathic POTS, the hyperadrenergic POTS, the other things come into play too. Well, that's, that's really encouraging. Yeah. So there's, uh, there's some major things we can do to help these patients. You mentioned pharmacologic therapy. What's, what's out there for that? Yep. So again, uh, not to be redundant, but once the non-pharmacological strategies are in place, then it can be reasonable to think about pharmacologic. And there are medications to either raise blood pressure, slow down the heart, or increase kind of plasma volume. And those would be the three big goals. So if patients have neuropathic POTS, you know, their nerves are not as efficient at putting out norepinephrine to increase peripheral vascular tone to maintain blood pressure. There's a mechanistic reason I think mitogen might be helpful. It's a peripheral vasoconstrictor. Uh, droxydopa or Northera uh, acts similarly. It, it's a prodrug, but basically also works to increase total peripheral resistance. So a low-dose mitogen or a low-dose droxydopa in patients with neuropathic POTS might be reasonable. People are often familiar with using beta blockers like propranolol for POTS, but it's probably only the patients with hyperadrenergic POTS for whom that helps. And the others, it seems to get worse. And so whether you measure supine and standing norepinephrine, or you just um, recognize the, the patients with the tremulous hands, the sweaty palms, and the really kind of hyperadrenergic features for a trial of propranolol, I think uh, either way is reasonable. But if they've got a clear neuropathy and it came after an infection, I don't think propranolol really has any role and it's probably going to make them worse. To increase plasma volume, then that would be where fludrocortisone might come in. I'll say the more years I do this, the less a fan I become of that medication. It can cause supine hypertension. That's probably more in the older patients than the younger. It rarely might cause a renal or cardiac fibrosis. So if, it, if patients are on it long term, I start to get worried. And it almost always worsens headaches. And one of the most common comorbidities with POTS is migraine. And so most patients just can't tolerate it because it actually makes their headaches worse. So I'll say I, I tend to avoid fludrocortisone, even though that's um, in the literature as well as being commonly used. Mm -hmm. 
Well, some of the reading I was doing on POTS, I was surprised to see that there are businesses offering IV fluid therapy for patients with POTS. Is there evidence that these patients are hypovolemic? There is evidence that these patients are hypovolemic. And every patient who gets an IV infusion will say it makes them feel better for a couple of days, but it is most definitely not a good long-term strategy. I validate patients, yes, I understand it does make you feel better, but what it does is it makes your body reliant on those big bolus as a fluid and thus probably less efficient at absorbing anything you take in by mouth and you kind of less attentive to maintaining that oral hydration. So I tell patients really the only role for IV fluids here is as kind of an acute rescue if someone has a real bad decompensation. Because one thing um, that POTS patients will be prone to is a kind of a relapse of symptoms if they're laid up in bed for any period of time. They, they decondition faster than our other patients. So if they have a surgery, you know, they, they have all the other things that any patient can get, and they, say they get their appendix out and they're laid up in bed for a couple of days, their POTS may decompensate quite a bit. And in that acute setting, IV fluids probably have a role. There's um, one study that looked at a few dozen patients with POTS and who all got IV fluids kind of titrated to symptom effect. You know, and most people seem to feel better. And they actually showed that the overall majority of patients were able to be tapered off the IV fluids within three to six months. So kind of viewing IV fluids as a bridge therapy. And that's probably about as far as I would take it because it shouldn't be a long-term strategy. It should not be something for which patients get a port put in place or a a pick line because they've also seen plenty of infections and sepsis and things coming from these, these ports that patients are accessing frequently. And really what we want to get patients to do is take in fluids by mouth. All right. Well, Jeremy, let's summarize our discussion. And can you give us maybe two or three key points of interest that you think are important in POTS? One would be to have a reasonably high level of suspicion. So a patient who develops symptoms that are worse when they're upright or says they just really can't get out of bed should make you think about POTS as one of the disorders of orthostatic tolerance and, and consider doing orthostatic bedside vital signs to check. That's one is to have an index of suspicion and do at least a, a very brief bedside exam of the relevant vital signs. Blood pressure should be stable, heart rate should go up. Two, think about what type of POTS they might have. Think about neuropathy, think about hyperadrenergic features, look at joint hypermobility. And three, when it comes to treatment, do the non-pharmacologic strategies, fluid, salt, compression, exercise, head of the bed elevated before you even consider any medications. Well, we've been discussing postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS with Dr. Jeremy Cutsforth-Gregory, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. Jeremy, this has been incredibly enlightening. Uh, you know, providers have been reluctant to see these patients, I think primarily because they didn't understand the mechanism behind it. You've clarified that. And then also we didn't know what to do for treatment and you've given us tips on that as well. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you, Daryl. It's been a pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.